A message from the comical heathen. It's not always easy to recognize if someone you love has become a member of a cult. Here are some of the warning signs. If you notice that they set the table for Chinese food with an odd number of chopsticks. If they're constantly talking about themselves in the fourth person. If their group has strange initiation rites that include taking out a bank loan. If their home has mirrors on the ceiling and pink champagne on the ceiling. If their leader laments not being able to date his daughter. If someone you love is demonstrating cult-like behaviors, direct them to the comical heathen. We could really use the followers. Welcome to today's episode of the Comical Heathen, one man's journey into a wild and weird world of religious satire. I'm your host, Dr. Jerry Jaffe, the world's most highly educated stand-up comedian, and I am he, the man on that journey. That journey includes a book that I'm writing. If you've listened to more than one episode of this podcast, I always mention the book because there's a bigger context going on. Maybe in a future episode I can get into the book itself more, but the purpose of this podcast and most episodes involves me doing interviews for that book. For example, today's episode includes a very exciting interview. I was so thrilled to be able to talk to Leanne Lord. I'm going to tell you more about her and that interview, and then we'll get into that interview shortly. Today's episode also includes a guest co-host, science comedian Brian Mallow. Brian is a well-known comedian and science communicator who I've met over the years, and in fact, I interviewed him already for the book project. You can find that extended interview, which I will post in the description of this episode. Leanne and Brian are also linked from another coincidence of fate, which is the three of us have a mutual friend, Ian Harris, really great comedian uh, based out in L.A. And I interviewed Ian in season one of this podcast. Furthermore, he actually called in a few episodes ago. So look for Ian Harris content. Um, in earlier episodes, and also because he's a mutual friend, he gets mentioned in both conversations I'm about to have. Both Brian and Leanne uh, bring him up repeatedly, so he is sort of like the unofficial other member of this episode. So thank you, Ian, who kind of facilitated all four of us getting to know each other. Now, as both a, a comedian and a citizen, as well as a person writing a book about satire, something that has um, developed for me is I've become very sensitive to newspaper articles and uh, magazines and things on the internet that are about religion and noticing things which are absurd or which uh, drive me batty. And I, I saw something like that recently. I came across a local Ohio newspaper called the Norwalk Reflector. On April 9th, they posted a story with this headline, Legislators align with anti-vaxxers. Byline goes to Jake Zuckerman. This is a story that was also picked up by other news outlets in Ohio, but this is the one where I first saw it. 16 Ohio House Republicans, many of whom have publicly announced that they will not be taking the COVID-19 vaccine, early in April proposed legislation 
to build legal protections for people who decline vaccinations. That's right. This bill is to protect anti-vaxxers who decline any vaccines, not even just COVID-19. And it's meant to try to eliminate or reduce the effects of so-called vaccine passports. And it's meant to like protect people's civil rights to like decide for themselves. And it's, it's so maddening. I mean, it sounds so crazy. What is their, their next bill is to protect people from falling off the edge of the earth. After that, they're going to propose some legislation to protect people from the thing that lives under their bed. And then they're going to top it all off with a new bill that's meant to protect all Americans from Sasquatch, the Loch Ness Monster, and Hillary Clinton's pizza shops. There's a group in Ohio called the Ohio Advocates for Medical Freedom. Ah, yes, freedom. That's always the word they bandy about, freedom. Don't we love freedom? Isn't it such an American concept? No, these are the same people who equate freedom with not having to wear their seatbelts, being able to smoke anywhere they want. These are the same people who fought against the Affordable Care Act. They've really equated freedom with uh, a kind of pro-fuck-you-I-don't-care-if-you-die platform. And I can see why they have so many supporters. Who wouldn't vote for that? The Ohio Advocates for Medical Freedom. Come on. How about I'm for the Ohio Advocates for medical and scientific literacy, proficiency, and education. That's a lot more letters, but they're all of Mumfuf doesn't really make much sense either. You know, to get these vaccines to get their maximum effect for your community, for your country, and for the world, we need a maximum number of people getting these vaccines. The more people that decline, the more the virus can spread. And not only spread to people who got the vaccine, but then furthermore mutate and evolve, another word they don't like, even though it's already happening in real time. And then the original vaccines become less and less effective. So it's not their freedom. It's their freedom to spread a disease to the rest of us who are trying to create and participate in sensible public health policy. Because I have uh, two great science educators, Brian and Leanne, on this show, I was really thinking about science literacy. Both of them are participate in projects with different groups, making videos and conferences where they use their comedic and communication skills to help you know, spread and enhance science literacy, science education. They've both worked with Neil deGrasse Tyson on StarTalk, actually. Uh, not together at the same time, but over the years, they've both been contributors to that podcast. It's another example. But it got me thinking about science literacy, and, and it can only help, right? I mean, if, if people just understood a little bit more, another concept, another word, read a, one more book, listen to one more podcast, not mine, an actual good podcast, couldn't that at least help a little? And I, I found an article, which I'm going to share down below, and I sometimes share it with students when I'm talking about critical thinking skills. Article is called Seven Misused Science Words by Tia Gos and was originally published in Scientific America and is also available on their website. I'll include a link down below. And I'm not going to go into the whole article. Maybe you, you read it, you share it. But the big one, the one that is always the example of a misused science word is theory. How many times has an evolution denier our climate change denier, are a fan of Milli Vanilli, actually misused the word theory. 
one of the big ones is to attack the science by calling it just a theory, as if the word just denigrated it, as if the word theory just means guess or something that banal or, or simple. And then that allows them to go around the argument, to go around the evidence. The article, Tia Ghost article, it has a, a simple version of what the word theory is supposed to mean. A scientific theory is an explanation of some aspect of the natural world that has been substantiated through repeated experiments or testing. Scientific theories give expansive and thorough explanations of how things in the natural word world function, like germ theory anti-vaxxers. Ken Ham, world-famous creationist, is one of many evolution deniers that you can find using this phrase. It's just a theory. Really? Really, Ken Ham, it's just a theory? What would you say if a evolution denier were to say, oh, it's just an explanation of the natural world that's been substantiated through repeated experiments and testing? Yeah, he wouldn't say that, would he? It's as if Ham pointed at a ham sandwich and said it's just a ham sandwich. Just the thing that it is is denigrated because he doesn't understand the thing that it is. Or it's as if Ham pointed at a report that his estimated net worth is over $50 million and said, oh, it's just $50 million. I mean, that's nothing. It's not It's not a thing. It's, it's what's, fifth, what's $50 million? I don't know. I don't know what 50 million. It, I mean, it's exactly as Jesus taught us. Spread ignorance and lies. Create a, a biblical theme park and call it a museum. And do all these things to enrich yourself. It's exactly as Jesus taught. Like that time Jesus said, it's easier for a creation museum to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to get into heaven. I'm sure Ham is fine. It's just a theory. It's just a theory, Ken Ham. All right, I'm going to segue into our co-host, I've guest co-host, Brian Mallow. People who listen to this podcast, or if you are a first-time listener because you're a fan of Brian or Leanne or have found us for whatever reason, I do want to say I always record my interviews ahead of time. So the Brian interview was recorded a couple of weeks ago in April, right within a day or so of when the Johnson & Johnson blood clot concerns came up and it was you know suspended for a few days. So we talk about that a little bit. So I just want you to know that like that was a couple of weeks ago and that's why there's like that reference to that incident. Similarly, the Leanne interview was like a month or five weeks ago. So this podcast isn't meant to be topical. It's meant to be comedians talking about satire religious satire and how that relates to our comedy or comedy in general. So I do hope that you'll um, enjoy that. I want to just give you a few um, bit of shout outs uh, right now. Season two of the Comical Heathen podcast is presenting 10 weekly episodes. This is actually episode seven. Go back and look at the ones from the past few weeks and we what we have coming up. We do have an upcoming live Q&A episode. So if you have any ideas for questions or topics or things you'd like us to talk about or things you would like to disagree with us about, please feel free to email us anytime at comicalheathen at gmail.com. You can also leave comments below or, you know, through Facebook and Twitter. We do have a new YouTube channel. All of the podcast episodes, audio only, are available through YouTube. And when we do live streaming now, we do do a live show through YouTube. So look out for that if you want to watch us screw around a little bit. And this is, of course, a completely free and ad-free podcast. So, you know, if you enjoy it, please spread it around, share, like, 
repost, and consider making a donation. All donations go to support the cost of this little podcast project. So anything is appreciated. We do have a merch shop as well, including the very fancy comical heathen coffee mug. Consider looking at that. All right. And so with that being said, let's bring on our guest co-host for today's episode, science comedian Brian Mallow. And throughout the pandemic, there's been this misunderstanding of of what science is and how, right. you know, but you're also talking about a brand new species with mm-hmm. some unique characteristics and we're still learning about it. We don't know much about the long-term effects of COVID still. Hey uh, everyone, we're still learning about it. And the person we're learning from is science comedian, Brian Mallow. How are you, Brian? I'm good. Great to see you again or, or hear you. I, I can see you because we're on Zoom, but yes. uh, not on the podcast. Only you get to appreciate my beautiful blue eyes. So it, I, like I, what you asked at the beginning of the pandemic, I did get very busy between okay. some contract work where I produced some videos for other people okay. and like the Sigma's eye stuff where some virus related ones. And then at night I was doing a lot of live streaming just for fun okay. on Facebook and Google or YouTube. Then I got a little burnt out. You know, I worked really hard for a while and I was living completely alone. It was very strangely isolating. And yes, and it's weird to sit there and do live streaming alone in a house talking to a camera, <laughs> but feeling, but having this technological connection, you know, people were out there, but I was just seeing their words on the screen. And then yes. I'm just sitting in a room by myself talking into a camera, <laughs> but uh, it was fun. I get used to it. Then I got burnt out a little and was a little yeah. less productive. But yeah, but I'm also very lucky lucky as a comedian because I would assume most of our comedian friends gigs just canceled. Yep. But my career took a strange path where I don't work comedy clubs as often anymore. So all the comedy club gigs dried up. But I do a lot of conferences where I perform or speak. And these conferences, instead of just closing, a lot of them went virtual. So I got virtual gigs and I have a lot of experience doing video and tech stuff. So in a way I was able, I was very fortunate compared to a lot of my comedian colleagues because I just, I still did gigs. I could interview scientists. I could host events. I could moderate panels. I could do a talk or even performances where you can't hear anything from the audience. I want to just say, because this is going to come up later in this episode, uh, I have a featured interview, which is with Leanne Lord. And I'll just say, she's going to talk about a similar thing because she does a lot of conferences and sort of hosting uh, science events. And of course her live gigs dried up, but she also embraced like this virtual world because her career also already had the makings of such a development. Yeah, uh, that's great. I don't know Leanne. I, I know of her. I like her. And we have some mutual friends that uh, Neil Tyson is yes. a mutual friend of ours, but also some another comedian you might know, Ian Harris. Funny thing is I met Ian and he introduced me to Leanne. So I know Ian from way back. I thought of inviting you on to be the co-host partially. I mean, you know, I, I love you. But in addition to loving you, because I knew the interview was Leanne and I thought it would have been fun. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) The audience at home will enjoy the juxtaposition, even though there's not the interaction. Mm -hmm. In my opening monologue, I um, was particularly sort of triggered by some Ohio politicians who are taking strong anti-vaxxer positions, including proposing actual legislation who have an anti-vaxxer themes. So, I mean, as a science educator and a comedian in either realm or both, what's What's your reaction to anti-vaxxers? How do you feel about that? This is kind of interesting because they want to enact legislation that can protect anti-vaxxers from having to get vaccinated or having a passport required or anything 
the first thing is, it's like, I realize that I'm woefully ignorant about what, what the status of things is across the country and across the world globally. Do we require vaccines? We have anti-vaxxers. There are people that don't get their kids vaccinated, but I know that there are requirements. The funny thing about people acting like this passport is a new thing. There are requirements to travel all the time. There's many countries that you have to get some vaccines. vaccinations before you're allowed and you have to show proof of this is not a new concept the thing that i found most disturbing in that uh story of yours is that what it could mean it's not Mm -hmm. just about covid vaccines it's about all vaccines and it means that hospital workers which currently like in ohio some of those hospitals they require their employees to get flu vaccinations because it's a hospital and this would enable them to decline to get flu vaccinations and still be an employee of a hospital. So they're like, that sounds problematic. And I wonder about like, what did people do when they were Trump supporters and rapidly anti-vax and then Trump gets the vaccine yes. and promotes the vaccine? Well, I, I wonder what the cognitive dissonance, you know, I wonder what they did with that. What's what's funny about Trump in, uh, in this case is that the reason he promoted the vaccine at all is so he could take credit for it. Of right, course. right, 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 right. You may now thank me that this vaccine, everyone bow down and worship to my leadership caused the vaccine. <laughs> oh boy. Yeah, there's so much, you know, the, and the, the even newer story now is the blood clot issue with the Johnson and Johnson yes. yep. uh, vaccine. And it's interesting. And I saw what I thought was a pretty balanced explanation of this because there's this idea like there's been it's like one in a million cases yes. of the right out of like yep. 7 million vaccinations, six cases. Yes. So even people like Nate Silver said, you know, that statistically that's just so low and that yep. it's a bad idea to react this way. But here's why it's actually, I heard a great explanation for why okay. it's necessary to react, not to overreact, Right. but if they don't take it seriously, then how can you trust the system? You, you have to go, you have to at least say they paused it. They didn't yes. do anything extreme. They said, let's take a look at this in case it's problematic. Yes. And maybe in all likelihood, they're going to yes. resume. And maybe there's a segment of the population that won't get the Johnson. Maybe you just don't, it's all been women so far. If right. that's the only threat, maybe women don't get that vaccine yes. and you only give it to men. Maybe there's another solution, or maybe it's also very likely with the stats that low that those clots had nothing to do, really had didn't have anything yes. to do with the vaccine. Yeah. So but they want to look at it. And just the fact of pausing it to do that, to, to not do that could engender mistrust and more has hesitancy. Yes. Yes. Take it as seriously as possible, which I would also just sort of extrapolate or generalize. And also let me add to the 12 people listening to this podcast (laughs) that Brian and I are not medical doctors or virologists or public health officials. I'm not a doctor, but I play one in the broken dreams of my parents. Yes. (laughs) My parents still weep that I never went into medicine. Uh, but right, we're not doctors, not not scientists, just just science comedian, but not scientists, just current events. Uh, Brian is a professional science communicator, knowledgeable on how to communicate about science. I'm very professional. That just means that somebody's given me money. I'm a big fan of people giving people money, though. So remember, there is a donate button for this podcast. So feel free to give us money. But do uh, I have to to continue the conversation? But to continue, (laughs) yes. How much do I have to give to be on this show? To continue our conversation, I did want to just follow up on what you were saying with the idea of like the generally, this is how serious scientists and public health officials have and should have a, we should take this serious because we don't know much about COVID yet. Yeah. 
So even if some people said, might complain it's an overreaction to shut down or overreaction to X, Y, Z, that the heart of the problem is we don't know. And a year ago, we definitely didn't know very much about the coronavirus. So we should have a little bit of overreaction to protecting ourselves and our communities. And I don't know, you know, like maybe it's not overreaction. It's just reacting. Correct. Absolutely. but, 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 you know, at the beginning, good point. A year ago, you heard all these things in the terms of denial um, and rejection of what was going on. There were all those, just think of all those things like we're a couple months in and they're saying the flu kills way more people. You're comparing the ninth inning score. You're comparing the, the, a year's worth of death from the flu. And we're like two months into this. It's absurd. And then each time it would go up, the thing that really kills me is that you never hear them recant. So now by the end of the year, it was 500,000. And you know what? In the U.S., mm-hmm. it was the third biggest cause of death after um, heart disease and cancer are number two. And COVID went right up to three. I don't even know where the flu is. It's mm-hmm. down under there's accidents and other things. Yes. But it shot up to their t- So half a million. So all the time they were saying the flu kills t- t- so much more. Yes. But once it got to there, you never heard them say, oh, sorry, sorry, sorry. That was stupid of me. I was wrong. Nope. Or when they said, oh, just wait. As soon as the election's <laughs> over, the virus is going to disappear. Okay, so the, the election's over. I want to hear those people recant. Did it disappear? No, it didn't disappear. And mm-hmm. and you they never take, they say these absurd things. Mm-hmm that do not come to pass and they never admit that they never came to pass. And then they do the same thing again. Do I sound like a comedian at all? (laughs) (laughs) By laughing doesn't make you a comedian. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Sadly, not laughing doesn't either. It's very complicated to determine who is or isn't a comedian. Early on, there's this kind of skepticism. I heard this. Did you hear anything like this where people are like, like, so like, oh, right. Big bad virus is so bad, but we're supposed to believe it can be killed by soap. Like how absurd that is. And it's like, you know, I understand you can kind of see where they come. They go, here's this horrible thing. And you're trying to convince me that soap, but you're like, yeah, um, it's just chemistry because it has this outer lipid surface. Uh, soap breaks it down. And so like, I, I kept trying to come up with an analogy to show how absurd that is. And uh, what I got is this. It's like, if your house was on fire and the fire department shows up, fire trucks, and they start pulling out hoses and spraying it. And you go, excuse me, what? Do you, what? My house is on fire. You're you're just using water? You're just going to put water? My house is on fire. You see, it's completely engulfed. And what you're going to, and all you brought is water. Great. Like that's going to work. Well, that is going to work. Sorry. And not every kind of virus has that lipid. There's other viruses that have a harder shell that soap is useless against. Polio or smallpox are a different kind. Not every type of virus has that lipid outer membrane that is susceptible, an Achilles heel, if you will, even though it's otherwise a really dangerous virus if if it has ideal conditions. But soap is not an ideal condition for it. Your soap comment just reminds me, because I I do want to talk about like politicians who speak or promote kind of anti-science And you can't forget, I know it was last year, and it's easy to pile on Trump because of all his many absurdities, but his comment about injecting bleach, like he had just heard a a discussion about how bleach can clean surfaces. (laughs) And his brain turned that into, maybe if we inject bleach, so that would be like, to carry on with your analogy, the firemen arrive and they're putting out the fire with the hose, and someone says, the water puts out fire. Would you inject some water into me? Like, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so 
So how about politicians uh, who are promoting these anti-vax oh, yeah. legislation and anti-science commentary in general? You know, th- I-, I feel like there's probably two kinds because there are some that are full of shit, that they're not being sincere to their own beliefs. They're being political with their beliefs. And the same, so like, if I could take a slight aside, it's always been a pet peeve of mine. The politicians who are anti-drug vocally and then get caught with drugs or are anti-gay rights. And then it's always a Republican Mm. gets caught with a a, a young man Mm. somewhere in a bathroom or a hotel. And so the thing that pisses me off is that you could have been a hero. Okay, you're gay. You could have been a leader and a hero to the cause, or in the very least, you could have just shut the hell up and stayed out of it. You didn't have to set back progress, civil rights, history. You know, you do you do drugs. What? Well, why do you have to be vocally? So they're doing it. I hate these hypocrites because you know they're getting people in the case of drugs locked up for things that they also do. So that kind of hypocrisy, like I almost respect an actual bigot more than those hypocrites, because at least they're true. I don't really. But but you know what I'm saying? It's like at least that bigot is at least he's being honest with who he truly he's being completely honest with his hateful worldview. But these people, they're covering up their they're lying about who they are for strictly reasons of power and politics and to advance and they're hurting other people by doing it. Um, um, it's not as, as it's not as serious as injecting bleach, but just to what yeah. you're saying, I recall then President Bush, and I mean Bush the younger, <laughs> being asked about the uh, evolution versus creationism <laughs> or intelligent design was the trendy expression in the early 2000s. And his response was, give them both a chance. <sighs> and there's no way I refuse to believe that Bush in his like private study contemplating science didn't believe in evolution. I believe that he was, you know, pandering. Right. By, by. Probably, but God, it's so hard to know with some people. Well, I, I wouldn't even say that with, but, but I know, but there's definitely people for who that's absolutely true. And I really hate that. So like the ones when it comes to do with climate change, where, you know, it's very transparent because there's a lot of money in the in the energy sector and for campaign support and all that so it's very beneficial to to play to that side so some of those people they know climate change is real and they're they're lying you know trump is the most transparent i don't believe when he says god bless you it's like it even makes an atheist cringe like 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 his lack of of honesty and sincerity corinthians part two the quickening (laughs) <laughs> is that what he said yeah. in his speech? Something like that. So, um, yeah, so I really hate, so there's the ones that really are anti-science sincerely, and then there's others. So, but yeah, so it's very frustrating. It's hard to even get it. It's hard to be optimistic about the prospects of so many things, but one of which is like, how do we change this system when this stuff is so embedded, these problems? One of the embedded problems, and I saw this in an article, uh, and I'm sure as a science communicator, you must confront this all the time. So that's why I wanted to bring it up. One aspect of science literacy with the general public is common science words are widely misunderstood. Right. Theory is the biggest example. People say, oh, it's just a theory, not realizing that in science, theory means a lot more than just guess. Yeah, I have a theory. I have a theory that a lot of dumbasses out there do not know what the word theory means. Theory is the big one. There are also these ones where 
I, I don't know if it's as crucial here, but um, in science communication, just when scientists are speaking to the public, they'll they might say something. It's jargon where they'll say something like the test, like experimental results could be positive or negative. Well, to most people, positive is good and negative is bad. But that's that's not what it means in science. It's like whether there was like an outcome or not. But it's not a judgment of good or bad, mm. positive, negative. I've so had that's many another date, case many of like, dates that have started with the date saying the outcome of this date will be either positive or negative. Here's something. The Large Hadron Collider, multi-billion dollar, decades long project and searching for the Higgs boson. And for the longest time, it didn't find it. It was getting negative. It would search in a certain energy realm and it didn't find it. But not find So like to some people, you might think all that wasted money and they didn't find it. Well, if that had been the result that they never, ultimately they did find it. But even if they had never found it, that wouldn't be a failure. That would be the result. That would be answering a question like, look, we searched there and didn't find it. It doesn't exist there or as far as far as we can tell. It could have been just as worthwhile, which is hard to wrap your mind around. They go, there's this assumption that finding it confirmed a theory, but not finding it would have made them have to, it didn't confirm the theory. It wouldn't have confirmed the theory. And it just would have hinted that there's something wrong with the theory. And that's actually good news to scientists, because if everything is fine with the theory, then there's like, what do they work on? It's like, when you see the, the kinks and the cracks, it's like, oh, there's something wrong. We, if we didn't find the Higgs boson, there would be something really wrong with the theory. And it would mean we really have to look, there's new science out there that we haven't found. And so it's kind of interesting, but, but negative results aren't necessarily bad. They're like, wow, okay, it doesn't exist there. Experiment complete. It's but, progress. But yeah. to be clear, they did eventually find it. But when experiments are being conducted to test hypotheses, the results, whatever they may be, represent yeah. progress. Like, like, you know, obviously you'd rather find something, hey, this turned out to be a cure for that. Right. But if it turns out to not be a cure for that, that's also information. An anti-vaxxer trying to make an argument out of the ingredients. Right. If ingredient X was harmful, then when they gave it to 30,000 people, they would have seen that result. So we already know whatever the vaccine, the flu shot or any other vaccine, these have been tested through trials. So to single out that there's arsenic in an apple, that ingredient X in a vaccine is present, is ultimately irrelevant. It's, I, I guess, like a yeah. straw man argument. They've constructed a problem that doesn't exist and tried oh, to turn you know, into a reason to uh, protest vaccines. Right. The, these the straw man argument, I, I, I should learn more about rhetoric and and those that those fallacies, logical fallacies or kinds of arguments, because you see them all the time where people are saying such so like so frustrating when it's like, I don't know if this is like a straw, but where they're going, it's like, yeah, yeah, that's not the that's not it's it's almost like saying, you know, if humans came from monkeys, how come they're still monkeys? Well, it's like your premise is totally flawed. Yes. First of all, humans <laughs> didn't come from monkeys. Let's just start there. And uh, so it's like we don't have to argue that one with you because you're characterizing the argument completely falsely. And that happens so much. And it derails discussion, debate, public policy, as, as school boards have done. If there's some kind of school board meeting about textbooks and a board member or a local community member stands up and says that, why, why are there monkeys if it came from monkeys? The whole conversation has now gone backwards. Like, right. you, you, now you have to- It's devolved, if yes. you will. <laughs> hey, I want to say to the 
If there's anyone who is listening to this episode and it's your first time listening to a comic believe episode, every episode of season two includes an explanation of at least one logical fallacy. Is so that please, right? That's right. <laughs> what What's today's, today's episode going to um, explain? Today's allied topic is simply science literacy. Science I didn't literacy. pick a specific fallacy, but I picked this topic, uh, one that would feed into your expertise, but also one that would feed into our topic of anti-vaxxers. You know, we all choose who we trust. Mm-hmm. And if it's wrong to trust the scientific and medical experts on scientific and medical issues, then we're just doomed. It's like, I don't know. Well, one of the reasons besides loving you so much that I was thinking of you for this episode is because the other person I interviewed is also uh, a great comedian who's involved in science communication, uh, Leanne Lord. Let's listen to that interview. Great. Let's do it. So here's my interview with Leanne Lord. And it is my pleasure today to introduce Leanne Lord. Leanne, how are you? I'm I'm well, thank you. Thank you for inviting me to uh, to do the interview, to be on your show. Oh, well, thank you so much for doing it. I really appreciate you. I became a, a fan of Leanne Lord uh, maybe a year, year and a half ago when our mutual friend Ian Harris said, you should go, you'll like Leanne Lord. She's your style <laughs> comedy. You got to get to know her. So thank you, Ian, for bridging uh, this new relationship. <laughs> Indeed. Thank, and I say thank you to Ian as well. I'm a big fan of his work, too. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's not talk about Ian. Let's talk about Leanne. <laughs> for anybody listening who is just meeting you uh, today, what's the, like, uh, you know, 90-second synopsis of just this question? How, how did you get into comedy to begin with? Like, where's the origin? Oh, grief. Origin story. <laughs> what's your origin My story? My 90-second or- origin story. All right, you can have 94 seconds. Thank you. Your generosity <laughs> is deeply appreciated. Well, I just to, to step back just a little bit. Sure. Um, I, in college, I did theater and my my degree is in journalism and creative writing. The focus on the creative writing mm-hmm. part. So you add performing and writing and then the element from way back in sixth grade when I decided <laughs> that I was tired of being picked on and, you know, beaten up and teased. Mm-hmm. And I said, well, maybe if I can make the kids laugh, mm-hmm. you know, if I make them laugh at me first. Uh, maybe that'll take the edge off, and it did. Mm-hmm. So you have those three elements: making my friends laugh, writing, uh, performing. Because uh, I was, you know, my minor was theater, and ta-da! <laughs> mix it all up. You have, <laughs> it adds up to stand-up comedy. Absolutely. That's sort of the short inspiration story. Of I mean, as a yeah. theater professor myself, I'm glad to hear uh, all success stories. Yeah. I mean, of course, a, a young adult can pursue theater and the performing arts out of passion, love, fun, hobby. But there is a fact that if one decides to make the turn into a career, there are jobs out there. Not always easy yes. to get, but it, no. it is an actual industry where you can get jobs and do stuff. <laughs> I, you mentioned a lot of roads into theater. Mine was actually an accident. Oh, yeah? Complete and total accident in college, yeah. I, uh, I was just looking for a quiet place to study. <laughs> you know, why, why would I go to the library? Why would I do that? Everybody mm-hmm. went there. Mm-hmm. I, I liked, you know, empty, quiet classrooms, and I stumbled into a, a little mini lecture hall where they were doing auditions. And, you know, I'm like, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. And I guess auditions weren't going well because they were like, wait, 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 before you go. <laughs> they said, can you sing? And I'm like, well, in the shower. And they said, can you dance? And I'm like, yes, I can. <laughs> and so they said, come on down, just just try it, you know. And and I found out I was auditioning for Guys and Dolls. <laughs> oh, holy moly. I will tell holy you, moly. besides being a great story, Guys and Dolls is probably my favorite, like, classic musical. 
Yes. Um, and that was my first college play. Well, congratulations. Uh, uh, my first, uh, my non-straight play. I went on to do straight plays there as well. Because you, you you know this, if you're a theater professor, man, once once you get bitten mm-hmm. by that theater bug, it's it's really hard to shake it. How about actual stand-up comedy? What what motivated you the first time you hit a mic? Oh, gosh. Um, if you can well, remember I, back then. No, no, I can. I absolutely can. But there, but there were a couple of things, you know, there was a time when, you know, stand up proliferated on television. Mm. You know, if I was if I was clicking the remote and then there was a brick wall and a microphone and some guy standing in front of it, that that's what we're watching, everybody. Yep. That's what we're doing. I remember not always getting it all. You know, because children weren't always so, you know, world-wise. Yes. <laughs> you know, there, there yep. were plenty of jokes I didn't get, you know, <laughs> but I, I paid attention because I'm like, I want to get mm. this. I mean, but that was, you know, childhood. So that sort of, you know, laid that foundation. I yep. had no idea that I could do right. comedy until I saw Marsha Warfield on TV. Mm. You know, Marsha Warfield from um, Night Court fame. Right. There's a black woman on stage smoking a cigarette, not caring, not giving a damn. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, what? Because I was way, way too young for Moms Mabley. You know, I didn't know the history of comedy right. at that point. I was way too young. So so she was one of the first people that I saw, her and Bertice Berry, um, okay. who, uh, PhD, comedian, you know, Dr. Mm-hmm. Berry. And she was just so incredibly smart and elegant. And I'm like, oh, Oh, so so not only can we do this, we can do this in more than one way. So it was important to see that. But in terms of my, you know, what really was the, I guess, the final push mm-hmm. was uh, I got to see one of the first season, first and one of the episodes in the first season in the taping of Deaf Comedy Jam. Because okay. I was taped here in New York. And I remember my boyfriend at the time surprised me with tickets because he knew I liked comedy, but I'd never seen it live. We went and I remember sitting in the balcony and I was just mesmerized. I was like, I want to do that. Yeah. That is exactly like I had been searching. I was in this awful corporate job that I hated. And I totally recommend having a <laughs> job you hate. Nothing makes you find out what you want to do with your life than hating your job. Mm. And so I, I'm i sitting in the balcony. I'm watching, uh, in particular, Michael Collier uh, was on stage at the time. And his command of the audience was just perfect oh his command his confidence his comedy i i literally said i want to do that now saying you want to do that is still a long <laughs> long ways away from getting yes, to what you've seen <laughs> but yeah that sort of pushed me into that's it i want to do it so now you you have done it you have been doing it uh just um especially with the last year we've all had how have things been going for you in the pandemic life Ah, is that a trick question? (laughs) (laughs) Well, you get get any gigs, you're doing any work. How are you surviving? Well, I will say um, in the beginning, you know, the sort of the March, April, May of it was absolutely horrifying and terrifying because it felt like the pandemic sort of retired us all. Mm -hmm. And by all of us, I mean, you know, those of us who work in the arts, who work in entertainment, you know, being here in the city, you know, when Broadway shuts down, like I don't even understand those words. Because I was I was a Broadway kid, you know, my my parents took me to see Broadway shows all the time. I feel like I live there. So when that major barometer of entertainment is mm-hmm. is so decimated, it the trickle down effect was even more so that ripple effect, you know, because now we're talking about all, all the people who make their money in that industry, but other forms of entertainment, that's music, that's mm-hmm. comedy, that's bars, that's cabarets, that's, you know, all of us who work so hard to, you know, to develop an act or our talent. Mm-hmm. You know, all of a sudden we're home. 
Yes. And I, you know, you... I, it was it was really scary. I mean, because I, I was for a long time in a, I guess, a wonderful group uh, that has been able to live doing comedy. Well, comedy and other things. Of you, course. you realize you get to multitask and, yes. and multi-purpose your skill set in in many wonderful ways, but still primarily identify as a stand-up. And I was really scared because mm-hmm. I'm like, if I can't go out to do this, what do I do? And very shortly thereafter, I, I want to say it was maybe the end of March, beginning of April, uh, someone reached out to me from Comedy Oakland and said, hey, do you want to do a virtual show? And I said, yes. All I heard was show. <laughs> I didn't know what the virtual part meant. Like, okay, so I, I, I said yes. What did I just say yes to? And, you know, the beginning was rough. It's like, okay, so I, I need what? Zoom? Zoom? What is Zoom? I need that. Okay, and now you need to be able to see me at eye level, and now I need a background. And I mean, I was just, I literally had my kitchen, a, chair, a kitchen chair on top of my kitchen table, my laptop on top of that, and uh, a tablecloth strung up behind me. Mm. blocking my way into the refrigerator which you know in retrospect I should have left it there but you know that was the beginning of you know saying yes uh, Mm -hmm. to I don't know what this is but I'm going to do this and I'm a firm believer in that people book people who are working you know and the fact that I just kept saying yes to these (laughs) shows and figuring it out and doing it and it you sort of have to translate your skills to this medium it's not impossible but it is a little bit of a shift mm-hmm. and you have to spend a little time learning that. Right. And I'm really glad I did. I don't want to say it's, it's the same as, you know, sure. getting on a plane, going somewhere or driving to right. a gig, but it's gotten to the point where I tell people, I'm like, I've spent, you know, more than 20 years leaving my house to do comedy. <laughs> and now it's like, you want me to leave my house to do comedy? <laughs> Are you serious? Which is wonderful that it's been able to to translate. It doesn't completely fill right. that void, but it is, com- I feel like it's it's absolutely better than nothing. You know, so there are virtual stand-up shows, you know, some of the conferences that mm-hmm. I used to host are, they've figured out that they, how to do it virtually, and they want me to still host those, oh. you know, uh, hosting lecture series and things like that. Being seen virtually means people go, oh, she knows how to do this. Your work begets work. I've done very few virtual shows, but I think there's probably like a distinction, which I'm just going to blurt out real quick. I think there's also like a, a, a genre of virtual show that has popped up in the past year in which the comedians don't get paid like a local show, almost like an open mic or, a, but so I just have kind have kind of made a decision not to do free shows virtually. Well, 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 let me put it this way. Nothing's changed. <laughs> <laughs> you know, everybody's like, Oh, what do we do? And it's so different. No, it's not. People doing free shows in, in the, in the, in the real world. Yes. You know, you had to make a choice, you know, do I do a free show? Do I do an open mic? You know, we're making the exact same decisions, mm-hmm. you know, um, but just now in a, you know, on a different platform, you know, there are plenty of shows uh, that I do that are not necessarily big on, on monetary compensation, <laughs> <laughs> shall we say, right. but I, I get to feel comfortable mm-hmm. in my square. I get to try out new material. I get to figure out, well, how do I deal with an audience or no audience right. because there are some platforms where the audience not only are they not in the room it's like a webex format <laughs> where there's no possibility right for interaction and how do you work on your timing and delivery then right and you say about well why would you well because some corporations will hire comics and have a webex platform 
I want you to still do that. And so how do you, how do you do that and not freak out? And that's just by getting practice doing it. So I I almost feel as if the pandemic, no matter what level you were in the industry, (laughs) we all got set back to the open (laughs) mic days. And we had to go, you know, we sort of had to pick up our egos and go, mm-hmm. okay, yes. now what? You know, it's always about the end game. What are you trying to accomplish, you know, with a show or or, or performance? So I just want to like, make sure I acknowledge um, you recently had uh, your dry bar special come out. When did that come out? <laughs> yes, um, it came out, um, I want to say the last week of January. Okay, yeah. The yeah. first week of February. That feels yeah. not right. Er- I keep saying like two weeks ago, but that was like a month ago. Now. Yes. <laughs> So early 2021. Uh, my, yeah, yeah, because my sense of time is still off. Uh, oh, yeah. uh, but we were we were well into the new year uh, when when it came out, and you know I I didn't realize how much I would have to warn people when they watched it because people were like, oh my gosh, everybody's sitting close together. There's no masks. There's no social yeah. distancing. And I I had to put a you know a little announcement out there that hey everybody, this was taped in the before times. Yes. <laughs> it's amazing how in such a short amount of time we've changed our perception about what things should look yep. like and uh but i taped it in um november 2019 okay. uh, you know having no idea how the world yeah, was coming it's <laughs> going to change you know with the shutdown and with, it, with everything that's going on it took them a while to sort of get that season out yeah you know, i'm actually really glad that it wasn't until 2021 that it came out because it just felt like you know new everything yep. new opportunities new everything yep. and it was a great way to sort of kick off the year and you, you mentioned hosting uh, duties. You um, host Skeptical Inquirer Presents. It's mm-hmm. a twice a month like lecture series. Yes. How is that going? And, and, I mean, that's in the... oh, that's amazing. I actually have one this Thursday. It's oh, it's great. Excellent. And and that grew out of SciCon. You know, the the there's the, the the committee for Skeptical Inquiry and the Center for Inquiry um, did a a conference every year, mm-hmm. and I got a chance to host theirs back in. Yeah, it was 2019. Mm-hmm. I was taking, I was uh, just filling in for Geo one year because I was also the, had become the regular host for Nexus, the okay. Northeast Conference on Science and Skepticism. And so when everything shut down for 2020, they're like, okay, oh gosh, we can't do our conference. They strategized. They said, well, if we can't do that, what can we do? And they came up with Skeptical Inquirer Presents. And many of these speakers that they would have invited out for the conference out to Vegas, they said, hey, would you mind? Can you do this on right. online, you know, mm-hmm. virtually? Very interesting. The same hesitancy that comedians had. Like, sure. oh, I don't know <laughs> if I want to do that. There were a lot of speakers yep. that said, oh, I don't know. Yep. I'm not sure, you know. And it took, so, it took some people a little time to warm up to the format, which is completely, totally fine. You mm-hmm. know, change is not necessarily something humans are really good at or or happy with but so it grew it grew into this um this online lecture series that happens twice a month it is an amazing opportunity to meet some amazing folks okay and to learn like this thursday well uh, one of our our guests is a man by the name of dr paul offit like i just saw him again last night on cnn he's one of the people that they go to when they're talking about vaccines Okay, and yeah. he's a returning guest um, and actually talking about, okay, the vaccines, where are we? Because there's so much um, misinformation right. 
regarding the vaccine, regarding the coronavirus, regarding, you know, fake news, quote mm-hmm. unquote. And that that is the goal of uh, the lecture series is to bring in these experts who can go, okay, here's the here's the fiction, here's the fact. And, and just clearing things up for people. Sadly, it's a little preaching to the choir because that audience is already primed for, yes. you know, the information and they ask really, really great, heady questions. In the course of doing this podcast the past couple of years, I have developed my own little philosophy that I want to give back to you. I think preaching to the choir is fine. Churches have been doing it for hundreds of years and it seems to work for them. So yes. we got to start somewhere, you know. <laughs> That's true. And I remember once, uh, I'm a big Mark Maron fan, but what I want to say ah. is that I once heard a couple of students, like I'm in the student lounge or something, nothing to do with me. They're having their own total own conversation. And then religion is what they were talking about. We don't even have to go into it. The thing I wanted to get to is that one of the students replied to his friend was he actively quoted a Mark Maron joke at him. And I just thought that is like preaching to the choir. So he likes Mark Maron so much he knows his material. And now he's having a debate with a friend and now he has something to say. So all of the people coming to the skeptical inquirer presents might be the choir, but they themselves go out to Thanksgiving dinners and it, it, it's funny you say that one of the, the through lines of, of all the questions that we get, almost no matter who the speakers are, whether they're talking about climate change or we had a wonderful uh, presenter who talked about the QAnon conspiracy from a little mm-hmm. bit on the inside because she had been a 9-11 truther mm-hmm. and managed to get herself out. And it made her sort of turn the, the mirror and really start looking at these, these myths and these conspiracies and like, how do people get sucked in? And the through line in the questions always seems to be, I have a cousin. I have an uncle, I have a friend, you know, who believes, you know, whatever. How do I talk Mm -hmm. to them? Like they have their people in their lives they haven't given up on. Uh, and they want to know, how do I even approach this? How do I talk to them? Yep. Which I, if that's not love, I don't know what is. Yep. You know, yep. like the, you, when you're still trying to reach across the aisle, you're still trying to reach people. Because I, yep. I, I think if anything's taken a beating in the last few years, it's our ability to, to talk with each other. Yep. Empathy. Yeah, compassion. Yeah. <laughs> we're, we, we're running low on it yes. on all sides. <laughs> Before we get more into satire, I do th- want to sort of shout this out. In 2019, you received... Um, the Humanist Arts Award. That's <laughs> yeah, fantastic. Congratulations. Thank you. How did that Thank come about? You. How did that um, happen? You know, I, I'm, as, I'm still stunned that it <laughs> happened. You know, I, I sort of wandered into the skeptical community. I, I mm-hmm. left the church. I wasn't, you know, I took the path of, oh, maybe spirituality. Mm-hmm. Oh, maybe crystals. Oh, maybe the Baha'i <laughs> faith. And then finally I was like, oh, no, it's all crap. All of it. <laughs> You know, where where do I find people like me? You know, where do I find that community? And so that's how I kind of stumbled into it. And because I'm a performer, you know, people would, oh, Leanne, well, can you can you do this? And I became CFI, did something, had a, a group called African-Americans uh, for Humanism, and they did a, a campaign, an outreach campaign that said, if you have doubts about religion, you're not the only one. You know, it, it wasn't running into Black churches, pulling people yes. out. It was like <laughs> people who look like you have doubts, too. And it was a national campaign. I, I was happy. I happened to be the New York City face. And then after that, just things, they say, hey, would you yep. like to perform at this conference? Or <laughs> would you like to perform at that conference? Yes. I mean, so these opportunities started coming in and I didn't say no, but I, I had to keep telling them like, hey, you guys, I'm not an atheist comedian. I'm a comedian who's an atheist. That's real different. Yeah. <laughs> 
you know, very, very different focus. And they were like, yeah, we don't care. You're funny. <laughs> you know, so I, I kept going. I kept going mm-hmm. to events. I kept going to conferences. And, you know, I, I kept trying to say, I'm not an activist. I'm just being me. Right. And they said, yes, but you being you in the world makes a difference. You know, when people oh, can see that. I, mem- I remember someone had saw, saw a billboard that I was on for African-Americans for Humanism. And someone who know me for years, they, they they reached out to me. They said, yeah, Leanne, but, but, but you're so nice. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> that is the entire point. If we can demystify what it means to be a non-believer mm-hmm. and make space for, for that, you know, I, I, I think that's valid and that's important. And apparently so did the American Humanist mm. Association. I remember I got the email, I opened it up and like, you want to give me what? <laughs> you know, because I, I don't think I'm doing anything special. I'm just right. out here living my life. It was an honor and it was unexpected and it was wonderful. And, you know, the award is a lovely paperweight in my house. It's the prettiest paperweight I have in my house. Yes. <laughs> Let's follow up on that um, notion. Com- comedian who's an atheist, atheist who's a comedian, plus your journeys in the world of the skeptical community. What is, how does that intersect with your comedy? Like, how does your ideas as a non-believer or your journey becoming a non-believer come out in the type of comedy that you do, you know, if at all? Well, I, I, I think there's a, there's a very natural alignment there. You know, mm. um, comedians, at least the ones that I admire, you know, I, I consider myself uh, from the George Carlin school of comedy. You know, he had a way of just, you know, poking at the system, mm-hmm. showing the flaws, right. you know, taking things that on the face you wouldn't think are funny mm-hmm. or things that, you know, you might talk about in private. And he's just, you know, putting it out there and making you laugh. Mm-hmm. you know, just so uproariously. And then once you, you laugh, I feel after that comes this cleansing breath and you go, oh, he's right. Now what do we do about it? You know, mm-hmm. it's really this sort of truth teller, town crier, right. you know, the emperor has no clothes yep. approach to comedy that uh, I've always loved. To me, comedy at its best is when it does that. And, you know, I guess no shade to Christian comics, you know, you gotta, you gotta have your niche or your brand mm-hmm. or whatever it is. But I, I think true comedy just, you know, shines that light. It, it takes out the, you know, the right. woo, right. <laughs> you know? So I, I, again, I just, so I think, you know, comedy is an incredibly secular art right. and yeah. it just, I don't know, it's peanut butter and jelly to me. A, a comedy coach I know uh, recently, I heard him say this, uh, um, I think he wrote it in a little essay in a blog. He goes, when you do improv, you learn the phrase, yes, and. Mm-hmm. But he says, in his opinion, comedy should be about no, but. Yeah. yeah. Well, actually, I was thinking, yeah, but. Yes. <laughs> right, yeah. <laughs> As right. you say, Christian comics have their niche, so I wish them well. But it's hard to imagine a Christian comic going, no, but. That, that's what makes do it, what made doing dry bar so interesting. Mm-hmm. You know, the dry bars brand, if anybody's unfamiliar, their their whole brand is clean comedy. Mm-hmm. But not just that. It's not just clean, it's Provo clean because the show is taped in Provo, Utah, which is the heart of Mormon country. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, at the club where I taped, I flew out to do it, uh, they don't serve alcohol. They serve candy, you know, they, so they, and their standards for clean are incredibly, incredibly mm. narrow. Like my, the favorite thing I like to share is that uh, you can't even say, oh, my God. Interesting. Yes, they because they consider that literally to be an expression of praise. Mm-hmm. And if you're not using that, if you're not saying, oh, my God, as an expression of praise, then it's considered sacrilegious, which to the rest of us in the real world, we're like, what? 
but it comes down to they're not hiding their guidelines like this is what we want Mm -hmm. you know it's like doing a corporate gig you know you accept the terms of the gig or you don't i am not a mormon (laughs) (laughs) nor am i a squeaky clean comic i'm relatively clean but i was playing the end game i wanted that was it's a great brand it's a great platform to be seen on and if you want to do corporate work which you know i have done in the past Mm -hmm. and will continue to do what better calling card than that you mentioned um like uh, the you're so nice reaction to your billboard and Mm -hmm. the program you participated in do you find that religious satire plays a role in your comedy is that something you actively write jokes about not really i mean there's there's there there are things based on my experience you know like i i was raised catholic i went to catholic school you know, so I, I do have material based on that because it's coming out of mm-hmm. my truth and my personal experience. Mm-hmm. You know, is it something that I sit down and go, I want to do jokes about this? I don't, you know. Do those jokes go over better at <laughs> atheists and secular conferences? Absolutely. Because <laughs> you know, there's a whole bunch of us that that made our way out, mm-hmm. so to speak, or or come from a religious experience and, and can look back and, and find what was funny about that, which is humor translates pain. We don't call them, you know, the the angry atheists. But we don't. We're we're we're, I, we're past that. But I was in that. I mean, I remember. You know, I read those books. I right. absolutely love them. Agreed. Although I wasn't angry. And I I think there's a time when you when you need both. You right. know, if you don't want Dawkins screaming at you, mm-hmm. well, who's who's a little bit more reasonable? I can yes. have a conversation <laughs> with. It's almost the juxtaposition, and, and not exactly, but the juxtaposition mm-hmm. juxtaposition between sort of. Um, Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, both are absolutely necessary um, at a bare minimum. But you need that person that's going to be be angry and 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 mm-hmm. non-repentant and right. and opening people's eyes in a very shocking way. And then you also need those people who can have sit down and have reasoned conversations with other people who right. want to sit down right. and have reasoned conversations. Right. The one opens the door for the other. Right. The other, and that and that opening door helps maybe people see why others might be so angry. Well, those, you I know? mean, those are Dawkins and Hitchens and other books, Harris, from that time period. At that time, like two or three years after September 11th, I think they were insisting this has to be talked about, like at a time when it wasn't. Again, I don't really think of them as angry myself. That's kind of a caricature. But if they weren't aggressive, yeah, exactly. if they weren't aggressive in their posture, then the conversation would have be, uh, you know, harder to have. So I think their right. their force was needed at that time. Right, and and I don't think that aggressiveness came out of nowhere. Correct. You know, yep. we we were living and still are uh, to a, an extent in a society that's an increasingly religious, increasingly oppressive, increasingly mm-hmm. you know very narrow minded, and it's like that's no, it, they have a hard time. Li- even imagining that no one would want to live under that regime. Yep. So to sort of shake people out of the, hey, yep. the world's bigger than you, you know, the world's bigger than the religion you were raised in. Yep. You know, that I mean, that's one of the things that that sort of um, led to my way out. I was raised Catholic, uh, very insular, you know, neighborhood school. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I had questions that weren't being answered. So that was step one. Yep. <laughs> um, but then I went to college and I'm meeting people I never would have met in my neighborhood. You know, I'm like, this guy's Jewish. This girl's Baptist. This girl, mm. you know, everybody's got something else going on. Yeah. Everybody thinks they're right. 
how is that possible? Maybe it's not. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. Um, so, you you know, if you're, you know, that's what's so wonderful about college. You know, you get to <laughs> sort of start asking bigger questions and exploring and going to better parties. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And, and so I'm like, this isn't, it really started me on a journey out, you know, that I wish everybody had that opportunity because most people don't choose their religion. They're born into it. Right. It's a, I don't want to call it an indoctrination, but it is. No, so why well, would you doubt what you were born into? That's the old saying, right? Give me the child. I'll give you the man. Yeah. I mean, that's yeah. the working premise. <laughs> yeah. True, true. Mm -hmm. There and there aren't as many as the word. I don't know if I'm using this word right. Apostates is that right? right. People that that yeah, yeah, that leave their religion. Not a ton of us. Right. We're we're actually a very <laughs> small group. Um, Does satire have any effect? Like, is satire helping <laughs> in any way, or is it just well, like a define define satire for me? How are you defining? I don't know. I feel like I should ask you to define satire. You're the guest. <laughs> we want to know how you define. You're the one writing the book, dude. <laughs> You're not wrong, ma'am. You're not wrong. <laughs> well, I can't give my definition without talking about Bakhtin for 15 minutes, so it's hard for me to. <laughs> Darn academics. I mean, Paul Provenza said, asking a comedian about satire is like asking jazz musicians about why they're playing the notes they're playing. Comedy yeah. is just so much what we do by doing it. It's not always easy. Or even well, doesn't even matter. It's not even that it's easy. It's like irrelevant to come up with definitions well, sometimes. Part of the problem in the pandemic and the lockdowns didn't help. And in the strange way, social media doesn't help. We have a really hard time discerning satire or sarcasm from reality. You know, is, oh, is somebody yeah. saying this and they mean it? Right. Or are they being funny? I'm a big believer that the, the sans serif font that we're using on, online is does not carry the weight of our thoughts well. <laughs> You know, so in a way it has to be live, You or, or not live, at least you have to see yeah. somebody yes. doing it because there, you know, there's so much that's missed when we don't have facial expressions or body language or tone. If it's just in the text, if it's just in the written word, wow, it has to be really good. Yes. Yep. <laughs> it has to be so well done. Yes. And even then people can miss it. And another problem with the problem you're describing is that it's a common strategy on the alt-right to say, oh, we were just joking after saying some horrible, something, controversial yeah, something or racist or whatever. And then ex post facto, they play the comedy card. Right. True comics. No. I mean, that's that's the fire we juggle. That's right. the tightrope we want. You know, mm -hmm. if you if you don't mean it, don't say it, mm -hmm. you know, or if you can't defend it, you know, just saying, oh, I'm joking. You had better have been joking. Yes. But even then, we know, uh, uh, what's the phrase? Many a drunken tongue reveals a sober thought. Sure, oh yeah. The same with comedy. It's like, oh, yeah. no, they meant that. Yes. They meant that. It starts with what you're thinking about. Like, you can't tell a joke about something that you're not thinking about. So right. every joke right. is semi-autobiographical. Indeed, indeed. Um, and and that even comes down to even if you're, say, doing current events, you're, you're pulling from the headlines, yep. that punchline is going to be something you're thinking. Or even yes. the, your selection of material. What yeah. is it that, why did that headline, why did that story appeal to you? You know, and that twist that when you get from the from that setup to the punchline, yep. what got you there? You know, it's your thought process. It's your, it's your experience that, that gets you there. As an experienced professional, Imagine <laughs> that you are you are at an open mic or a comedy club where some beginners are, are doing five minutes. Mm. And someone, one of those young hopefuls, they want to do satire. What advice would you give 
this hypothetical young wannabe comic? It's my the same advice I would give for for any of it. You know, you got to read the room. That's number one. Who's your audience? You know, if you're doing stuff that's too inside or an inside joke and the audience isn't on the inside, they're going to stare at you mm-hmm. <laughs> at bare minimum. You know, you, you've got to let people in on it, on, on what you're doing, you know, if you want to take them on the ride with you. So I don't, I don't know if that, that answers your question. I just, I see a lot of comics or some comics, they, they, they worked so hard to be edgy. I want to be edgy. <laughs> It's not something you strive to be, you, right. you know, it's, it's something that maybe comes out of the type of material that you choose or the way that you tell it, that your mm-hmm. first obligation is to be funny. First and foremost, if it's not that, then you're doing a lecture. <laughs> that's a that's a different venue. Mm-hmm. And speaking of bringing critical thinking in, this, this is a callback to Ian. He, there are very few comics I've seen do it as well as he does. Mm-hmm. You know, he, like, I, I feel like watching him do stand up is a class in critical thinking. You know, yep. it's, it's just so well done that, you know, he, he gets people who at the beginning, yeah, they believe that ridiculous thing. And he steps them joke by joke yes. to why this is ridiculous. And they're laughing at themselves, but not in a mean way. That comes back to what I think you, there's so much you can do with comedy. You can, you can teach quiet as it's kept. Mm-hmm. an audience mm-hmm. you know you can get them to a different conclusion you can get them to see that something is ridiculous but if you make them laugh at themselves in a mean way mm-hmm. it's not going to work it's yeah. like how finger pointing in an argument or discussion mm-hmm. never changes anyone's mind right you know so making someone making fun of someone right. making them feel bad about themselves and making it personal is not going to change it's not going to entertain them and it's not going to change their minds but if you can make them laugh and then they go ha, wow yeah that yep. shouldn't have done that or hmm maybe i should change my mind or right. huh i can see a different see this in a different way it's a a softer way of getting them to think about things differently, which is what I believe comedy can do. And again, that's why there are different types of comics. There are the in-your-face comics, you know, who don't care about your feelings. And then there are people like me that you don't see coming. Thank you so much for uh, doing this uh, conversation with me. Oh, Jerry, thank you so much. Thank you so much. You know, my path for that was I was a comedian. And then I started doing some gigs at like museums and stuff. And if I appeared at a museum or something, even if it was basically a comedy performance, there would usually, you know, speakers typically have Q&A. So I would do some Q&A. And then I was like, well, that's fun. Mm -hmm. I'll do Q&A. Now I'm doing a show at a comedy club. Why not do Q&A then too? Because for me, sometimes a question means it's a, it can be a setup to a joke that I didn't tell yet. It's like, oh, well, I have something to say on the subject already. Sometimes it's just an opportunity. It's improvisational. It's like, I like the challenge. Ask me anything. And you know what? I don't even have to be funny. So I can just answer the the question. Depends on the question. It Mm -hmm. could be a very straight answer or it could be an entertaining answer. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Um, And they ask all sorts of things. They'll ask me personal questions, Mm -hmm. how I got into comedy, or they'll ask me science questions. Like I have a joke about why is the sky blue with just this silliness. And so sometimes they go, well, why is the sky blue? And I get to give them the actual answer. You know, talking about doing those shows at the museums, uh, Brian, reminds me of what Leanne said about how she got into some of her gigs just by showing up as an audience member. Like she would go to a talk and got to meet the people who were running the shows who then found out she was a professional entertainer and could host events and could provide entertainment at events. And so she just talked about the importance in show business of the old cliche, like you have to show up. Yeah, I guess that's a little bit about like making your own luck. 
um, being open to like any opportunity that comes along. I mean, you started doing gigs at museums and then you started getting invited to do gigs at museums, right? Like yeah. sort of built in a way. You know, I'll tell you what, I'll, I'll tell you a, a better story of showing up for me is that when my career morphed into, I don't do comedy clubs as much. I mostly go to sort of to conferences or science events or universities. I would only go to conferences that hired me to, to come perform or speak. Uh, Cause I would give science communication talks that are funny, but also that's different from just my flat out comedy shows. So I could speak or perform. I never went to any conferences for like, my own professional development. It's like, I would only go, but there were a couple I was interested in. A couple times in my career, I went ahead and I took a chance and I went out of my way and I'm like, you know what? I want to go to this uh, event. It was, there was one, it's defunct now. It was called Science Online and it was based in Raleigh and I was living in San Francisco and it was Science Online. It's all online science, online science communicators, bloggers, but some of them are writers, book writers and New York Times writers, but they also do something online podcasting, writing something. And so it was for everyone who does science online. It was an awesome unconference where, you know, we, we made the agenda in a wiki in the weeks leading up to it. It was awesome. Like, and I went, even though they weren't paying me and I maneuvered to be able to perform at the Saturday night banquet, even though I wasn't getting paid, I was like, I want to perform in front of all these science communicators. And so it happened and there was another speaker, this Meg Lauman, who's an amazing scientist and ecologist. And she studied, she would take balloons. She's a pioneer in studying the life in canopies, like rainforest canopies by first in her early days climbing and then later balloons to, to swoop in and see what's living up in the high treetops up there. And she gave this amazing and she's lovable and she's really interesting science. And, and I had to follow her. That was hard, but I slayed. And then boom, it was like, oh, I love this. And I went to that conference the next few years. And that woman, Meg, so a couple of years later, because of this conference and someone else I met, um, there was a job opportunity in Raleigh to work for Meg. And we had met at that thing. We had taken a picture together. I had gotten her book. She signed it to me because we just met. We both did the Saturday night banquet together. Next thing you know, I'm moving to Raleigh and working for her at the North Carolina Museum of Natural Sciences. So well, it's like, wanna... like sometimes I haven't always done it. You know what? I'm the kind of guy, I have a lot of ideas and I don't act on all of them. So right. this is, I'm telling this story to me as much as anyone else to remind myself that the times that I do show up, as Leanne said, that it often pays off. And you know what? Every time I'm on someone's podcast or something that, that I take the mm -hmm. time to just appear somewhere, there's the chance that one person will hear you that invites you to do mm -hmm. something else. You know, uh, let me follow up with that by just asking, this, this is middle of April that we're talking 2021. What do you, what do you got coming up? What should people know about? Where's the, where can they find Brian? Well, Mello? I'm easy to find with the phrase science comedian. That's my handle on Instagram and Twitter and YouTube and sciencecomedian.com. Right now, I don't have anything specific except go to, you know, youtube.com slash science comedian and subscribe to me. Yeah, please. Uh, my science comedian channel. I'm going to, 
be doing a lot more video and live streaming. So look for Science Comedian all over social media. I'll post your YouTube channel in the description of this. Um, Instagram, Twitter, and YouTube in particular. Let me just take a moment and thank everybody involved in this episode. I want to thank Leanne for letting me interview her and also Brian for being my guest co-host and just, you know, rocking it. And I just love you so much. Thank you. And my friend Jeff Getter too is responsible for our season two theme music and also does some additional writing for me. I almost feel like we owe royalties to Ian Harris just for saying his name so many times today. <laughs> I feel like he owes us royalties for saying exactly. <laughs> I'm sending him a bill as soon as we're done recording. So uh, let me thank the listeners, especially if you made it all the way to the end of this episode. You know, thank subscribe. the listener. I'd like to thank my listener. Yes. And I have two <laughs> listeners. Uh, <laughs> Neither of which is my wife, by the way. She refuses. <laughs> she gets enough of me uh, eight hours a day at home. Hey, anything that keeps the marriage together. Correct. <laughs> if not listening to this podcast <laughs> keeps our marriage together, I'm pro her not listening to it. So make sure you share, like. Uh, we do have a donate button. This is entirely you know, free, on ad no advertising, done by out of labor of love. And just to sign off, let me remind everybody, it might be your dogma, but it's my karma. And I'm all about spreading the love.